0: Welcome back to part two of Sun Records. If you missed our first episode on Sun Records, make sure you go back because we covered things like the background of Sun Records, Elvis, and a lot of the original recordings that happened there. Welcome to the Music History Project. We're your hosts, I'm Elizabeth Dale.
1: And Dan Del Fiorentino. And Mike Mullins.
0: If you want to check out any of our content or any of the other interviews that aren't featured, please check out our website at www.nam.org library. As you listen to a lot of these interviews um, in their entirety, you hear that term come up a lot. You hear sun sound. Sam Phillips had the sun sound lockdown, um, which I just think is absolutely fascinating. I mean, as, again, as someone not as not in the industry at all, uh, I don't know what that means. But I've learned quite, <laughs> quite in detail what that meant out there at Sun.
1: Well, a lot of people... Um... Really didn't give Sam the credit for that sound. For many years, in my estimation, it was the artists that brought their own style to Sun, like Johnny Cash. And I mean, I say that name and everybody knows what that style is. Jerry Lee Lewis, you know what that style is. Elvis, you know what that style is. Roy Orbison, you know what that style is. Yet there was, in addition to the styles that were recorded, was the sound that was recorded. And Sam needs to get the credit for that. And the way that that studio, although maybe put together with just whatever equipment, simple wiring that he had at the time, the placement of the microphones and the way that he recorded has a lot to do with that sound without a doubt. So let there be no mistake. There is a difference between the styles that the artist brought and the sound that was being recorded.
2: So we've got a, a few people, uh, talking about the sun sound and we're going to start off by hearing from Carl Mann again, uh, talking about what made Sam unique.
3: I like Sam, you know, uh, Sam and I got along pretty good. And, uh, Although on the end, the, I came in on the tail end of the '50s era there, and, and all that was was just all the other guys had done left, except Charlie Rich. Me and Charlie were there, was there at the same time, and uh, and uh, Sam had started getting in, interested in other things, you know, and he uh, didn't seem to be as interested in in, in it as he used to be. Mm-hmm. And uh, I didn't think he was putting enough promotion out, you know, after Mona Lisa, waited a pretty long while until Pretend, and then after that Pretend sold a lot of records and in, 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 and uh charted I think it got about numbers number around 50, fifty something. But it wasn't as big a record as Mona Lisa, you know, and uh it did but although it did sell a lot of records, it was in the charts for a while. And then uh Charlie uh recorded uh, Lonely Weekend and built a new studio. We we moved to the new studio during this time. And uh, but Sam was, uh, I, I always said that Sam was, was always searching for something different, you know. Mm. And he, he was at several of the sessions, but, you know, sometimes he wasn't. But when he was there, if I, I would go down there, like maybe with five songs that we had worked up, you know, to do. We'd go through all those songs, and Sam would say, "What else you got?"?" <laughs> I said, "Well that's all we got worked up, Sam, right now, you know And he said, "Well, uh, one night I called he said, uh, "Do you know uh coming around the mountain?" <laughs> uh, and so Eddie just started playing it on the guitar, you know, and so this turned on the machine, and, and we, we recorded instrumental coming around the mountain." <laughs> so that's how Sam was, he, he just always searching for something different and unique and that's that's what made Son, I, I believe, as unique as it, it was, you know, different. Hmm. He, he he had to have something different he, and he tried to stay away from letting you do much country, you know. He, he, I did a few country songs. That, uh, while I was there, but most of the time, he, he'd want me to meet, lean toward blues a little, you know, and he'd come up with, he came up with this song, uh, after I did, uh, let's see, I did Mona and Pretend, he came, and I did South of the Border, and he came up with the idea, me would do Some Enchanted Evening, which was a, a South Pacific uh, classic uh, musical, you know, way out there, classic. I said, man, I don't know. I think that's overstepping a little bit. <laughs> so he said, he got me this album. He said, oh, you can take this home and you play it. I, said, I want you to learn it. of trying to eat it. And my heart wasn't in it, but I learned it and we put it together and recorded it. But, uh, <laughs> but he, he was, Sam was that way. He was, he, he, you wanted something different, unique, and then uh, Charlie. We did one session, all-night session, that Charlie was there. Matter of fact, it was, I think, it was the first session I did after I moved over to the Madison Studio. Uh, Charlie had written this song for me called "I'm Coming Home," and uh, played it to me that day, and. Uh, I said, yeah, I'd like to do that, man. And uh, and so I talked him into playing on the session with me. So I did that song that night, when I'm Coming Home, and I thought, man, I think it was probably one of the best things I did while it was on. And a lot of people thought the same thing. If I'd have had that one as a follow-up to Mona Lisa, it would probably been, it'd probably at least one of the top 20. But uh, that wasn't the case, you know. So Sam, but Sam had kind of, like I said, he kind of, uh, my feeling was that he kind of uh, dropped off uh, a little bit less interested in, in the music world. He was, you know, he had bought, he had stock and all Inns ends, and I don't know what all he had uh, going on, but uh, he got worried he, you know, he didn't show up too much in the studio. And, and, but uh, it was a real uh, great experience, and I had a lot of fun doing it, and and I, I was just thrilled to death to get a hit record, you know. And uh, I remember when I first uh, recorded Mona Lisa first came out; they played it around locally, uh, and like it went pretty big, Memphis and Nashville both, you know, both getting play on both sides. And then it kind of died out, you know, and I thought, that's been out about two months, and I thought, well, you know, that's it, it ain't gonna happen. It ain't gonna happen. So one day, uh, one of the, uh, uh girl named Barbara Barnes was working for Sam, and uh, she was the uh, sales representative, and called me and said, How's it, how how does it feel to have a hit record? And I said. Well, I didn't know I had one yet. <laughs> and she told me it just broke open in New York, and Buffalo, New York, a guy named Dick Biondi had broke it up there on the 50,000 Water. And she wanted me to come and have some promo pictures made. And since they sent me on promo tour up in, uh, on the East Coast. I did all the major cities up and down the East Coast. Uh, T V shows and, and interviews on radio stations and magazines and that that sort of thing. But that's that's kind of the way it was in my in my uh my time, you know, and uh it's just a lot different nowadays. I know things are are really um, completely different, you
2: know,
1: By the way, that was recorded in his living room, um, and I mean this in all due respect, the middle of nowhere Tennessee. (laughs) That must be a theme with
0: these guys, live in the middle of nowhere.
1: (laughs) And um, I I just wanted to reiterate that that recording, along with the others that you're hearing, are all interviews from the NAAM Oral History Archives. And there are a couple of other people that I know we're going to hear from later, uh, that we've also recorded that spoke about um, Sun Records, and there was a few others that we're not going to be talking about. Uh, and I just wanted to make sure that we had a, a little shout out to D J Fontana, Elvis's first drummer, um, who came around a little bit later, but did actually record at Sun before Elvis's contract was sold by Sam to RCA Records. And of course, the rest is history: "Heartbreak Hotel," "Don't Be Cruel," "Hound Dog." <laughs> More Elvis talk, Mike. Elvis talk (laughs) Sorry, there will always be something to say about Elvis. But I just wanted to get a little shout out there uh, that you can uh, listen to other interviews. Uh, Ace Cannon, for example, was a great saxophone player who uh, was on several sessions on Sun and had his own hit called Tough in the early 60s. Uh, We also have a great interview with him.
0: Yeah, and in case you didn't get that website before, uh, it's nam.org slash library. That's N-A-M-M dot org slash library. So now I think we're going to head back and hear some more from Matt, who worked at Sun. Uh, he's got a couple really good clips we're going to put back to back, talking about the different gear that was used at Sun, which I know nothing about. So I will kind of leave it up to you guys after we're done to break it all down.
1: I was going to ask you about the gear there at Sun. What did you use? What was the board? Because I, when I went to the Rock and Soul Museum, I thought for sure I saw the original board in the museum. Yeah, so it correct. can't be there now.
4: No, it's not. So Sam left Sun in 1959. I always make short answers really long. So oh, Sam left good. Sun in 1959. He started. He started building the Phillips Studio in '58. Uh, and you got to think that you know, in early 1950s, they didn't have recording equipment. You used broadcast equipment. So he went through various consoles at Sun. At first he went direct to disc. He had a little portable Presto tape, uh, preamp box. And then he went to an RCA. His big purchase was in about 54. He bought an RCA 76 Series 2 console. Uh, and When he went to Phillips, they had 3-track at that time. They had He had more money, so he had a custom console made. So the, the RCA sat in storage. Um, and uh, it stayed there until the rock and Soul Museum in Memphis got it, and the Rock and, uh, Soul M- uh, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in Ohio got the Presto board and some of the tape machines. So I've went out and found, I searched for years um, for the same kind of console, and I found one in LA eventually. So I bought, I have the same model, but not hmm. his exact one, and um, even when Sam bought his, he bought a used from a North Carolina radio station, it was all blowed up burned up and tubes were gone, so he had to spend a while fixing his up. Luckily mine was, I bought it working, but (laughs) it took me a while to figure out how he did it. You know, it's four microphones, how he wired the, the big thing for me was the tape echo. So, when he discovered tape echo, it was kind of an accident. And you would think it was an auxin or a fexin, there's none of those on the broadcast boards. There's no EQ, there's nothing. So, I finally figured out when I saw an old picture of his, and I talked to Scotty and stuff, I saw an old picture of a girl singing Mary Sue Wimberly in Sun, and the, as you know, there's not a lot of pictures, and there's no video back then. And she's got a, the Sure 55, and then there's an electrovoice Triple Six right back here. And then I, you know, and I talked to Cowboy Jack and that stuff. But Sam would have the vocal mic. He would have a mic for the echo, and the mic would be somewhere in the room, whatever he wanted to echo or however much he wanted to echo, and that would be sent to the other tape machine, and it would return on the console. Oh. so he wasn't sending from the board and it's, a, it's an amazing way to do echo because A, you're getting phase issues you're kind of EQing with the mic but you can also put it between the vocal and the bass or on the drums or instead of sending from the console so it took things like that to figure it out but oh. um, when I started Sun it was a Soundcraft TS-24 console it was MCI 2 inch a lot of modern it was a sonar before it was sonar it was Kickwalk audio um, and that was the head engineer's stuff in there. And when I took over as head engineer, that's when I started putting in all the old 50s stuff. Mm. Uh, the the RCA2 console, the Ampex machines, the old RCA microphones.
1: Did he have an Echoplex in there, Sam?
4: Uh, no, that was before Echoplex was ever made. So he, used, he had two Ampex 350 machines. And that's how he did Echo. So he recorded to one, and he would use the other mic and send to the other machine, have it on repro, returning on to the console. So all the slap was done with the three hundred and fifty. Interesting, because that was before uh, tape echo had really been invented. They understood it, and that was before echoplexes or any of those machines had been made. So,
1: very interesting. That's cool. Yeah. So cool had, if
4: you look at the pictures, he had a like a roll around Ampex three hundred and fifty, and he had one in the rack. The One in the rack was the slapback echo. Okay. So, and they'd all use it if they wanted to overdub, right? So if you got your, your mono mix on one tape. You could return the mono mix back through channel one of the board, and you had three other microphones you could overdub with to the new tape machine. Wow. So you could so same never really overdub, but Cowboy Jack liked to overdub. So on Johnny Cash stuff, you'll hear background vocals and stuff. That's typically an overdub, but you're doing a generation loss of tape as you do that, so it adds noise to it. Yeah. You're in Memphis, you know. We don't have any of the, the toys. We had to make do with what we got, and. Um, on that subject, uh, one of the old sun drummers, Jan Van Eaton, told me, and this is 53, that Sam would make every drummer put a wallet on the snare. And that's 53, so I have to believe that Sam was probably the inventor of the wallet on the snare, you mm. know, which is kind of wild to think about.
2: You know, that's just crazy to me, because even today, every time you go into the studio, they usually yell at you to put a wallet on your snare. And if, you, if they don't yell at you, you usually do it anyway just because it, it that's that's the sound and that's how you do it. And it's the easiest way to get rid of all of the overtones in your snare.
0: Which what I found most interesting about that is the fact that I had to Google that <laughs> to make sure it wasn't a music term I did not understand and quickly found out they literally meant putting a wallet yep. onto a drum. yeah and So that just, you know, a little laugh at myself moment for not knowing anything. But,
2: but it's, it's just crazy to think that it was invented there, um, just knowing that everybody does that now. And, and just all
1: the, everything that this guy knows, it's incredible about all of the gear. And I think also it brings to mind how Sam used it. And I think that's going back to the uh, the sun sound and how that uh, equipment was maximized, even if it was sort of low end at the time.
0: Yeah, which leads us into a really good uh, point. And that's, that Sam wasn't the only one there the entire time. He had a lot of help from a guy by the name of Jack Clement who comes in and works at sun and matt who we just heard from is going to talk about the differences between sam and jack and how that affected uh what sounds came out of that room
4: sam used a lot of tape echo jack didn't really use tape echo sam never really overdubs jack would overdub so you have these variances of the sun sound even though it's the same exact equipment the same microphones the same players um same thing with royal and stacks so it all just depends on the, that's what's cool about it i think you
1: know yeah do you know much about Jack, Dan? Or? I never got to interview him, but of course, uh, well known as a uh, recording engineer uh, there in Sun and other places, and uh, quite an influence on Roland Janes, who we uh, also got to interview another engineer who went on to uh, to work at the other recording studio that, uh, that Sam Phillips started that was mentioned a little bit earlier, just around the corner from uh, Sun Studios on Union, Uh, there in Memphis, was the uh, Phillips Recording Studio, also known as the Sam C. Phillips Recording Studio on uh, Madison Avenue that was uh, uh, talked about a little bit earlier. And that was actually formed in 1960.
0: And if I remember correctly, I mean, if I'm not, if I'm not right, please tell me. But um I was always under the impression that Jack was more of a musician as opposed to Sam, who really wasn't so much of a musician. He was more of a sound guy. And so f- some of the interviews, when I've listened to him again in their full length, uh, they talk about how when a song would get played in the studio and it didn't sound right, Sam would quickly say, well, it's not right. I don't know what's wrong with it, but I just know it's not right. Whereas Jack would come in and say, you need to turn up this level or you n- we need more drums or we need less drums or whatever other... Thing in particular that Jack found found uh, could be altered to improve improve the record coming out, which I just found really interesting. Two vastly different guys in, a, in their approaches were able to pull it all together, I guess.
1: Absolutely. Jack and Roland Janes were both studio musicians as well as uh, gigging musicians. So I think you're absolutely right about that. That added an element to the recording process that maybe Sam felt a little unable to do. Um, but certainly that was a great combination.
0: And we're going to hear from Roland Janes in just a little bit. But uh, we're going to hear another cl- clip from Matt. And this is talking about the description of the, of sun and the feeling of the room. And before we start it, one little tidbit that I, as a historian myself, found pretty interesting is that the sun building, before it was the studio, was a bakery of all things, which you couldn't, I mean, you can't really beat that, right? So, <laughs> If only it still was a bakery. I know, right? Donuts and... Bakery Drums. slash recording I don't know. studio. What would you call it? <laughs>
4: <laughs> I think so many people get studios wrong because they have all this high tech crap and they have all these like nice leather chairs and stuff and I and you know when you go in the sun it's it's a live floor for white tile and a couple lights and you can't dim the lights. You can't like you know, make it dark and vibey in there. It's just what it is. But it whatever it is, it causes a feeling that inside you to place and it sounds a certain way where you hear in the room and you play a certain
0: way I love that word that he uses vibey vibey
2: yeah well (laughs) it it, I don't know it paints a good picture of what it was like being in there
0: yeah it makes you wonder why they I mean and again you guys might know more than me why did why did that transition happen why is it all night like mood lighting and big overstuffed sofas and you know I mean that's the Hollywood picture that gets painted for people who don't visit a studio anymore.
2: Well, I know with a lot of people, that is the ultimate goal, is to make your studio space really sought after and to to, to give off that vibe of walking in and, oh, everything's perfect <laughs> here. It feels really good to be in here. And to have a space where it's naturally like that, mm-hmm. I think it's just, you know, it was a goldmine.
0: Yeah. What? Oh, I was, I was just gonna ask you, Dan, what about the, do you know much about the acoustics of the room? I know he mentioned that
1: It wasn't really treated, I know that, and I think that the point that you guys are making that's also very important to reiterate is that any sort of changes or advancements to the studio, acoustic measurements and treatment and all the things that we now know to be critical in sound recording studios now, weren't ever applied to, to the Sun Studios there on Union Street whatever Sam had uh, learned in that process, he applied to his second studio, which was around the corner on Madison, the Phillips Studio. So that does have sound treatment. That does have big, cushy chairs and comfortable couches and sort of the more rock and roll vibe. It does have dimmable lights, you know, all of that, uh, that Matt was alluding to uh, over at Sun. Because I think that Sun has, of course, become an institution. It is more than just a tourist attraction. People really do want to record there. Musicians really want to say, I recorded in that space, and that space isn't a whole lot different than it was when B.B. King and Elvis were there.
0: And I know Matt talks about in his interview that even now today, the the artists coming in today to record at Sun, they have a whole new set of challenges because since it's been kind of you know renovated into this museum space to some degree so tourists can come and see the the room that it all happened in Uh, there's a huge glass front panel in it and that really messes up the acoustics of the room I guess even more than they did before Um, and I know Matt said that that was that's a a new challenge to record there is how do you play off that big glass wall essentially so we're going to hear once more from Matt, and then we're going to get a little break from him. Um, and this is going to be about Sam's favorite microphone. What do you love to use in the studio?
4: Sam's favorite microphone was his Altec M11. It's the world's first, well, America's first condenser microphone. It, they call it the Coke bottle mic. It's this yeah. weird shape. But it's Omni. goes all the way down to 10 hertz. And it's a glass capsule. It's a really weird sound. But that's the only condenser he had at Sun. Hmm. And it was kind of his most expensive microphone. Uh, he said he used to love it on Howlin' Wolf's voice. But there's pictures of him using it on Elvis, and it's such a roomy room, and such a roomy mic that you pick up the slap of the bass, you pick up Scotty's electric, and if he slapped in that, that's how he got that slap back on all that early stuff. But like Mystery Train, I think Mystery Train is like the best, one of the best signed records out of Sun, and it's Sam's favorite cut on Elvis, but if you listen to That's Right Mama and you listen to Mystery Train, sonically, Mystery Train is incredible. Um, and that's when Scotty got a, a cool amp called an Echo Sonic amp. They had a tape machine built in the back for the slapback, so Sam could directly mic that amp and still get the slapback, you know, on it and Elvis's vocal and stuff. So I think a lot of the early stuff was a little bit more roomy, maybe not necessarily mic'd on the amp. And then later stuff, he definitely had a mic on the amp. It just depends on the song and the take and stuff.
0: Dan, have you listened to the original of Mystery Train and stuff like that versus like a, re, I guess, remastered?
1: Yeah, take? absolutely.
0: Can you tell the difference between the two?
1: Yes. And I think that to me, I, of course, always love the original because, you know, I'm old school and I remember playing that on my 45 player when I was a kid. Uh, Mystery Train is definitely my favorite Elvis song. Um, and that's saying something because I like most of the things that he recorded. Um but it really showcases the sound of that studio. I think that that song would not have sounded the same anywhere else. And uh, because I'm convinced of that, and it sounds like Matt's convinced of that too, that adds to the mystique and why so many people seek out not only to record there, but those original recordings done by just about everybody. They wanna hear how did B.B. King sound there? How did Helen Wolf sound there? How did those guys sound differently? Uh, of course, so many of the artists uh, from the Rockabilly era went on to have their own careers outside of Sun. Um, Jerry Lee Lewis, Johnny Cash, to come to mind. Another cat that we did not uh, mention earlier, but certainly uh, two more actually that uh, also uh, started at Sun and had their own careers later on was uh, Charlie Rich and uh, Billy Lee Riley. Uh, both uh, rockabilly guides in the early days and if you listen to those recordings at Sun versus their recordings on other labels and other Studios later there to me in my opinion is a difference
0: So uh, we're gonna transition to another new voice. We're gonna hear from J.M. J.M. Van Eaton What do we know about him?
1: Well, we were talking about him a little earlier about being one of the uh, session drummers at uh, Sun And uh, he was on a couple of great recordings and, uh, uh, as I said, I think earlier, one of the real swell guys that we've been able to interview. It was my goal, by the way, of this podcast to work in the word swell.
0: Well, I just think that makes this podcast full of goodies then.
1: (laughs) And now we've worked in
0: goodies.
1: (laughs) So
2: we're going to hear J.M. Van Eaton uh, talk about Sam's use of echo on the, the tune That's Right, Mama.
5: When Elvis cut That's All Right, Mama, even though it didn't have a drum on it, it was uh, such a unique sound with the echo. See, that's, some, that's where Sam's part came in, having that slapback echo on those records. That just immediately sounded different from what everybody else was getting.
0: Uh, so when he talks about that like that slapback echo, I mean, to me, that, that that's like quintessential Elvis is what I hear. That's You can almost pick the first couple of notes coming in a track before Elvis even you know, sings anything, you go, oh, that's an Elvis song. I'm not like you, Dan. I wouldn't be able to name which one, but you can kind of always tell. And I I guess that's the sun sound that I was always hearing growing up.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think the other interesting fact I mentioned earlier that just a few months after all of this, when Elvis's contract was sold over to RCA and he went to New York Uh, with uh, Scotty and and, uh, DJ Fontana and then the uh, band swelled with uh, Floyd Kramer and Chet Atkins and a few others and uh, in January of 56 recorded Heartbreak Hotel. You'll have to remember the beginning of that song in particular had that echo. It was that rockabilly sound that RCA was now trying to duplicate and they did it um, to great success of course but it wasn't still the sun sound.
0: So that leads us back to talking about Sam and Jack, the dynamic duo. And uh, this is, I don't know, this might be Mike's favorite topic, being a drummer. Yeah, I
2: mean, <laughs> the, the, the people that brought in the drums are obviously going to be my favorite. <laughs> mm-hmm. So we're going to hear J.M. talking about bringing in drums.
5: When the drums and guitars collided, that's what changed music forever. Because prior to that, they didn't have drums on the Grand Ole Library. These country boys didn't have drums. And when they put drums behind the guitars, and, and Jack Clement and Sam them, they almost made me or made the drum a leading instrument. They brought the thing, it wasn't in the back where you could feel it anymore. It's up front where, hey man, it's almost too much, you know, but it, it, it worked out really good. So... If you stop to think of the music that came after they've started putting all this together, all these groups, the Beatles, the Stones, the Eagles, all the bands, it's guitars and drums, man. I mean, I know you can throw in uh, different groups uh, along the way, but primarily, that's what, in my opinion, changed music. And in Memphis, Sam was willing to let that happen. With Elvis, you know, and Elvis eventually put drums on there. Along when when they finally put drums with Johnny Cash, but uh, I mean, to me, that was ground zero for rock and roll. Even and, and I like Bill Haley, but they still more or less had that swing rhythm, that drum, two, three, You know, that was, that wasn't rock and roll. I mean, it was rock and roll, I guess. I don't mean to step because they're great, but that wasn't what we what we came up with. So we had that little shuffle with that heavy backbeat and. Uh, you know, I guess, uh, as you say, that, uh, you know, it went on from there, you know.
2: Now, definitely the birth of rock and roll right there, bringing in the drums. But I, I think more importantly, too, is is all types of music were really affected by this because, you know, drums, guitar, bass, that is, that is standard band material right there now. And, and before that, you know, it really wasn't. And it's incredible to see that. At this studio where all of this is happening, they're—they're they're not just creating these artists that everybody remembers now. They're—they're they're creating a new sound and and changing music forever. So pretty
1: incredible. One of the uh, goals of Elizabeth during this podcast is to keep me on track. So <laughs> good luck with okay, this. Okay. Uh...
0: But I do want
1: to do a quick little side note oh, no. uh, because of what jm was talking about one of the uh, first drummers to bring drums onto the grand old opry was buddy Harmon, and uh, we have an interview with him on our website so um i think it's important to tie some of these together with the fact that we've been so blessed to have uh, amazing interviews uh, within the nam oral history collection one of them is uh, buddy harman
0: and i'll give everyone a break on that url one more time but uh you're going to hear it again before we wrap for the day. So make sure you go online and check out all these interviews. That wasn't too bad for a tangent. Thank you. I mean, you kept it under 60 seconds. Not that I had a stopwatch or anything.
1: You were glaring at me, I, so I, <laughs> I was worried.
0: Well, don't lie to the people, Dan. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so now we're going to hear from uh, Roland James, who you mentioned earlier and kind of gave his bio a little bit earlier. So uh, we don't necessarily need to do that again. But he is going to discuss how Sam had this very unique talent, which I would probably say is what one of the things that made him most successful throughout his career of drawing sound out of people. So he was able to really get them to produce and to make mu- the music he wanted them to make, which I think is makes him a real people person.
2: Yeah, I think the hardest part of producing anything really is just making the musicians feel comfortable so that they can play what's what they want to play and not feel I don't know, forced to play something that they should play.
1: Overproduced, I guess. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I guess
0: that makes sense then for the big overstuffed couches and the mood lighting.
1: You know, I've heard different people say different things about, you know, he was more of a a producer. He was more of an engineer. People have different thoughts about exactly what his best attributes were. What did you see that?
6: Well, Sam was good at everything he did. Uh, I think his greatest... uh, Talent probably was the ability to work with people and get the most out of what they had. And uh, he, uh, he worked a lot on feel. If it felt good to him, then it was good. If he had a little mistake or two in there, it didn't make any difference. He wasn't afraid to leave it in. And he, uh, loved, he could work really good with people. He could take an average uh, entertainer or singer or whatever and uh, get the most out of them and really make them better than what they really were but I think it was probably his greatest talent was his ability. Along he, he was a good recording engineer because he had did a lot of that. In fact, he used to uh, do the live broadcast for the big orchestras at the Peabody Hotel here in Memphis. Mm. So he knew what he was doing as an engineer, but his ability to work with people I think was even greater than that.
1: Very interesting, yeah, that's cool. He certainly was able to do that. He worked with a lot of very interesting people.
6: He he really was. He uh, he took a small studio, not a whole lot of equipment, and some people that probably couldn't have got a contract anywhere else worked with them, got the most they had to give, the best they had, and he was able to combine all those things and cut hit records. Hmm. Very, very talented man. And he also had a brother named Judd Phillips who was a great uh, promoter. And he helped promote those records.
2: So let's head over to W.S. Holland, uh, who has some comments about the, the same kind of stuff and in reference to Blue suede Shoes.
7: The the thing about Sun Studio and Sam Phillips was he just let people do what they could do. So when, when we went in, we just played the only thing we knew to play, the only way we knew to play it. and And I think that's one of the things now, since it's all history, is one of the things that that made what we did at Sun Records in Memphis so special now. It was a group of guys that just did what the only thing they could do. It wasn't a deal of of getting together and uh, writing something or rehearsing this and learning all how to play it. We didn't do that. We just went in and. A lot of the, you listen to the, well even on Blue Suede Shoes, if you listen to it, our version of it, the intro that I I was doing wasn't correct. You know, as Carl said, one for the money, then two for the show. We could have waited between those beats as long as we wanted to. It wasn't anything in time, then one for the money, go Cat go, and then we, we did it. And after we found out later that it was actually wrong you know like one for the money two for the show three to get ready but we didn't try to learn it that way because now when when ron and, and me and the band go the people want to hear the version that had the mistakes on it more than they do the rules hmm. then on another uh record uh, i just played through the stops and We was listening to it, and I said, Sam, that's kind of different. He said, yeah, so he just left it that way. You listen to the record now. Uh, And I didn't stop like I was supposed to, but it worked really great at that time. Now it's all history. It's really great. (laughs) To pull
0: a dandy and go off topic a little bit. Uh, Dan, who'd you just get a phone call from?
1: (laughs) Norbert. Norbert Putman uh, played bass on the last seven albums with Elvis and did not record in Sun with Elvis. That was uh, way before his time. But uh, it is always great to uh, think that me stalking the folks that played with Elvis actually (laughs) results into at least some forced friendship.
0: Well, and just know if you ever, you and your friends ever play out there, you guys ever play uh, Seven Degrees of Separation to Elvis, Dandy is somewhere on that list. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, Okay, so going back to W.S. Holland and what he said, uh, I found that really interesting. I never knew that he played, uh, I guess, quote unquote, incorrectly on Blue Suede Shoes. I always thought that there was a correct uh, count that he did on the intro. Well,
2: I think it, it, it really ties together, you know, what the whole sun sound was. Um, because speaking from a musician's point of view, going into a studio, there's a little bit of pressure to play everything perfectly just because everybody's going to be referencing that in your, in your career for the rest of your life. So, so knowing that, that these guys were going in there and just playing to have a good time. And that's usually when the best music comes out. And if there's a couple mistakes, no one even notices. Like he was just saying, when he, when he plays now, they still want to hear the version with the mistakes. It's just because that's the better
0: version. Anything you want to add? I mean, well, you don't have to. You pass, yeah. pass. <laughs> well, I, I'll always say something. We
1: haven't talked a whole lot about Carl Perkins, but I think that part of what WS is referring to was that Carl was known as a real people person. You know, he really enjoyed making music. He really loved the musicians that he played with. He gave a lot of respect Uh, to them uh, one of my favorite memories of going and attending a concert with uh, Carl Perkins was how long the introduction to the band was much more than most you know when like Elvis and others would always introduce the band it would just be a quick little, okay, that's a guy on drums, (laughs) Carl would go into a whole huge story because they were his buddies. He really respected them, and just because he was a front man didn't mean that he wanted any less light shone on them. And uh, I think that goes back to what Michael was saying about creating an atmosphere for which people like WS could feel comfortable to play their very best.
0: So that's, we're going to transition to our last topic here, talking about the sun sound, and it's probably, I don't know, maybe the most famous aspect of sun sound, and that's the invention and the use of the echoplex. So Dan was able actually to interview Mike Battle, who invented the echoplex, right?
1: Right. Mike um, was interviewed, uh, one of the very first interviews, I think the second year that we started this uh, oral history program here at NAM in 2002. Uh, Mike Battle was interviewed at uh, the Nashville NAM show.
0: The loudest part of the Nashville show. It's a little loud. We didn't have a whole lot of control
1: back then. I was just happy to get a microphone on him. He was actually in his booth uh, having a little bit of trouble walking around. So, Again, this goes back to 2002. He was born in 1917, passed away in 2008, and is the inventor of the Echoplex.
8: So anyhow, when this guy come in the shop, said he wanted to build one of these, his name was Don Dixon, good guitar player. I worked on that for him for two years. He said, it ain't just quite right, Mike. and I was getting kind of disgusted with it, you know. We build them in little square boxes, wooden boxes, tall boxes. Surprised me; these guys would come in and play it and buy it. I'd build (laughs) another. I I thought to myself, the guys buying this piece of junk—they must have a head (laughs) exam. But they had a circus with (laughs) it. Then I went down to see Les uh, Chet Atkins. He was in—no, where was that? In Detroit. And he said, "Mike, he says that's a winner." And he tried to get Gretch to handle it. They said just—they couldn't do it just stand there. He's kind of disappointed in that too, because well, we wanted to get together. So we went, well, that's when I took off to Chicago and met uh, Les Paul there. Well, it, it was after the length of tape was modified, then that sliding head. Now, uh, all the other machines, the heads were set. You had to play to their tempo. Well, that's what one thing that Gip, uh, uh, Dixon says if you could just fix it so you could move the head a little bit. Well, there'll have to be some sort of slide. And he says, and I said, that's going to be kind of hard. I said, is, if you go longer, the tape moves up and down, in and out of the, the, the recording room. But we finally got a nice flat plate, and got the thing going. And then the cartridge is the next thing. We had a lot, a lot of development on that cartridge. The first one was very crude, they would just wander on a little spool. But it worked. Everybody bought it. And from then on, we just gradually built it up into that unit there, which was the ultimate then.
0: I bet that kind of gives you nightmares to what the oral history, how the worst setting for an interview. As Michael mentioned, uh, when we were previewing the, the clip, if you've never been to a NAM show, that is the quintessential experience, right? Yes.
2: Yeah. Lots of, lots of sounds coming from all directions. That's definitely the show.
0: <laughs> and just shouting at each other to get your point across because no one can hear you.
1: <laughs> but also I'll add that it's also the, so cool to walk down the aisle and say, oh my gosh, there's Mike Battle sitting <laughs> on a folding chair in a booth who invented the Plex." And
0: if you ever have the opportunity to watch, walk the show floor with Dan, that is exactly what will happen the entire time, except for it'll be 40 people within 10 feet. So, <laughs> and they'll all want to talk to him, which is great. You get to meet. So many great people. Um, So that kind of wraps up the Sun Sound. Do you guys have anything you want to say about the Echoplex? Other than it's amazing?
1: I mean... Well, what's great is uh, Mike's family is still producing products, and uh, there's a third and fourth generation of Echoplex being created now, which I think is fantastic.
0: All right. So our next topic, Sun Records, is some of the recordings. We're not going to hit, I mean... I guess you could come up with these big name Elvis ones and blue suede shoes from Carl Perkins and anything from Jerry Lee Lewis or some of the early cash stuff. But we're going to kind of go a little bit deeper than that, because why talk about things people already know about? (laughs) What would be the point? Uh, So our first recording that we're going to talk about, we're going to kind of tell the story of is a song called Mona Lisa. Uh, And the song was originally written by or originally performed, I guess, by Nat King Cole. Right.
1: Right, it was written by Jay Livingston and uh, Ray Evans uh, back when they were um, songwriters for MGM Studios. And in fact, the uh, little side note... Uh-oh. Yeah, <laughs> here, here we looking... go. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let me start.
0: Hold on, let me start my my uh, stopwatch here. Okay, go.
1: <laughs> the original title and original lyrics was Prima Donna, and they changed it to Mona Lisa, which uh, I think is funny. Every time I hear that song, I listen to it and try to put in the term or the, the words prima donna, and it doesn't quite fit. So I'm glad they changed it. And, of course, huge hit for Nat King Cole, who was coming out of a career as a jazz pianist and uh, singing solo um, and making huge hit records in the early 1950s. And then came along this guy that we had heard about earlier, Carl Mann, who thought, well, I'm going to put a little uh, rockabilly twist to this.
0: Yes, we're going to hear from Carl Mann, and then right after, we'll probably hear from uh, W.S. Holland about working with Carl Mann on Mona Lisa.
3: Well, Eddie and I, uh, we started working on a style, and we was uh, kicking a few songs around old standards, and he mentioned, he mentioned the song Mona Lisa from uh, uh, Nat King Cole because it was popular back in the early 50s, you know, and and so we were playing one night at a at a club over near uh, Kentucky, state line, and uh, a lot of college students came over there from uh, Murray, uh, Kentucky, because they, uh, uh, Murray was Dry County, so they came across the state line of Tennessee to get, you know, a party. <laughs> and so uh, they, I started out doing that song slow and so they started hollering we want we want to fast do something fast you know we want to dance and so we just stopped and and hit it and started off on like a rock and roll style and we got about seven or eight requests for it that night and so i I told eddie i said this might be the song we're looking for so we started working on it we got me and eddie got it down pretty well and we got with ws and worked it out, so that's kind. Of, that's about the story.
1: <laughs> so where did you record it?
3: We recorded in uh, Memphis at Sun, and uh, the day well, actually the day we recorded it was the audition day, and we went there, and Jack Clements was the A uh, and R man for for Sun at that time, and and Sam wasn't there. At that day, but we we took three cuts on it and uh, uh that was that was it mm-hmm. so uh during that time, Conway Twitty walked in and he went he went into the control room and was listening to it and uh, he came out and and after we did it, he came out and shook hands and introduced himself to me, him and and told me he thought I had a hit record so uh that's when I first met him, and then he went back to Nashville and, and cut it, recorded it kind of on our style, uh, as much as he could remember, and was going to put it in an uh, album, but they eventually released it onto on a single. And then at the time, I hadn't yet signed with, with Son. So when when we found out about that, well, I, I called Sam Phillips and told him about it, or me or WS one—I I can't recall which one of us. WS found out about it up, and he was playing up in Canada with Carl Perkins, and he ran into a guy named Ronnie Hawkins, and uh, they were just talking after the show back at the hotel one night, and, uh, and Ronnie uh, told, asked WS uh you know Conway Twitty? And uh, W.S. said, yeah. I said, guess what the next record going to be? Because they were friends, and I guess he had talked to him uh, that day or something. He said, you remember that old song, Mona Lisa? <laughs> so, so W.S. said, I, I, I about jumped out of the chair. <laughs> <laughs> and so he called me, and, and then we called uh, Mr. Phillips, and, uh, and he said, how soon can you get out here and sign a contract, son? <laughs> I said, "Well, I'll be there as soon as I can, ASAP." So I went down, and signed with them, and then they released it about three weeks, maybe. And so both Conway's and mine both were in the top 100, you know, charts at the same time. We was kind of battling one another, you know, and and so, uh, but uh, you know, I've. I thought about it a lot of times, you know. If Conway hadn't uh, hadn't uh, recorded it, you know, I, I I may never have gotten a contract with them, with Sun Records, you know. So I tried to look at it that way in a in a, in a positive view. <laughs> at first, I was upset, you know, because uh, you know, because we had created the style, you know, and and. and uh, but like I said afterwards I, I, I was thankful that he did because actually uh, I heard later that that Sam didn't really care much for the song you know care much for the for the, what he heard but uh, later on you know we did a lot we did a lot down there at Sun and uh, wound up recording somewhere in the neighborhood of 80 80 or 90 songs all the time I was with Son.
2: And now let's hear from W.S. Holland.
1: I wanted to ask you about your friend Carl Mann. Can you tell me about him?
7: I can. Carl Mann. That was another part of my life that I look back at now and play those records that I've made with Carl Mann. And I... probably some of the best playing I did. And how that happened, uh, so when I was with Carl Perkins, we'd be out on tour, we'd come in, and I'd met Joyce, and she worked at a telephone company, and I'd go by and get her, at, like at nine o'clock at night, and we'd go some of the places around here. One of the places was uh, Hilltop, no, Cotton Bowl, one of the places was Cotton Bowl down towards Henderson, the way south of here. And we went in there one night and just got a table and sat down and <clears throat> band was on the stage. And there was four guys, I never had seen them. But I knew one of them that was on there. But the others, I, never had, I didn't know who they were. And we listened to them a little bit and I told Joyce, I said, "Something a little bit different about what I'm hearing here. Just wasn't the, Like I'd learned to kind of listen to things with you know Sam Phillips. So I, we stayed till they took a break and met them, introduced them all. One of them was Carl Mann. At that time, he was playing piano, and uh, the guitar player was Eddie Bush." And the bass player was a boy named Bob Oldsval, and the drummer was a boy named Jimmy Martin. Now I knew Jimmy, I, I I knew of him because he was a drummer. And we just talked for a while, and then we got together later. Now Jimmy, he was a good guy, a good friend of mine. But he he couldn't he couldn't play drums. He, you know, the main thing about playing drums is keeping time. He he couldn't keep time. But anyway, we got together, Carl, Eddie Bush, and the bass player, and me and worked up that arrangement of Mona Lisa. And by this time, I was a good friend of Sam's, so we loaded up and went to Memphis and Sam listened to it. And he heard it. And we recorded that album there, Like Man. And we did that uh, Mona Lisa, Pretend, South of the Border, oh, I don't know how many of them. And that was, the, I listen to that now and I said, man, how did I know how to do that? You know, it's just weird. So you must be a little bit of a Carl Mann fan. You've heard about it. So that's, that's, how he got to start, and we sold a lot of lot of records there. Fact of business, you'll like this. <clears throat> Conway Twitty, who was Harold Jenkins, as you know, he was in the studio. Says all time somebody coming by, you know, which is good, but and he heard us record that. So he goes and record. Did you know he 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 cut it? Now. A little while after that, I was with Carl Perkins in Toronto, Canada. We went up to play at the Edison Hotel Lounge there, and Ronnie Hawkins had the group next door called the Lecoq Door, That's where, <clears throat> and uh, we was after a show one night, all in the Warwick Hotel cutting up, and I, and I heard... Uh, Ronnie was talking to Carl, he said, man, my buddy uh, Harold called me today and played me a version of Mona Lisa that was out of sight. And I just happened to hear, whoa, that's when I hear better than I do now. (laughs) (laughs) I said, tell me about this. And he said, yeah, Harold just called me this morning and played me a version of Mona Lisa. And I said, said, is it kind of an up-tempo version like Mona Lisa? He said, yeah, how would you know? So I told him how I knew. So the next morning, I got up and uh, called Sam and told him what had happened. He said, don't be concerned about it. I'll have it out in three days. And he did. And we sold uh, 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 half a million or over with it back then.
0: One thing to say I think is that it's absolutely fascinating before we get into the content of what those two guys said is that the fact that the program, the oral history program, you're able to capture essentially the same story from different perspectives. I mean, that really is, I guess, one of the great facets of the program.
1: And I will give some credit to um, a couple of folks that I grew up with uh, listening to when I was a kid on 60 Minutes, Ed Bradley in particular really had that concept down on his recordings and and interviews and uh, something that I tried to emulate because I do think that there's three sides to every story. And uh, that's always a fun element of the NAM oral history program is to uh, to, uh, go into detail on some of these very specific little items.
0: And I guess uh, that brings me to shamelessly plugging the website again. You can check out more from the oral history program at nam.org slash library that's dot org slash library we should just record that once and play it constantly so i don't Um, have to say it all the time have a button (laughs) yeah just a button (laughs) (laughs) uh so going back to what uh um, carl mann excuse me carl mann and w.s holland mentioned in there is talking about recording mona lisa and conway twitty's uh artistic license i guess is how you would say it on his version
1: Absolutely. And I think it's uh, interesting to have the opportunity to uh, listen to both recordings. And I'll encourage you to to do that, uh, listeners out there. Uh, Maybe even start with Nat King Cole, because I think that refreshing your memory of what the original was like, um, to me, tells you how significant it was for Carl Mann to break away from that completely when introducing Rockabilly to an otherwise standard song. And, of course, um, the frustration he felt, obviously, when uh, Conway Twitty recorded it, but later, um, as pointed out by Elizabeth, the uh, realizing that uh, maybe that was actually good for his career and, and good for that recording to uh, be copied and emulated.
0: So our next recording we're going to focus on is probably uh, Michael's favorite, I would think. It's I definitely hear, my favorite. I hear him singing it all the time in the cubicle next to me. It's a little much. No, it's a recording uh, by the name of Midnight Man. I won't get the deep, what is it, baritone? I don't know if that's the right word. Maybe I'm just making things up now. Um, by a guy named Vernon Drain, and he was interviewed by Dan quite some time ago, and he, what, wrote lead sheets at Sun?
1: Right. He was a, uh, a singer in uh, various choirs, mostly in churches in and around Memphis, and uh, also worked as a a musical instrument repairman. In fact, for 65 years, he was over at AMRO Music there in Memphis, and I think this is an important detail because, of course, the uh, National Association of Music Merchants is really based on and founded by musical merchants, aka mom-and-pop music stores all across the world, and um, part of the history that we are trying to archive is theirs along with the entire uh, industry that grew up around that. So music manufacturers and educators and musicians as well that tie into the industry. So it's kind of fun uh, for this podcast and perhaps each of our issues that we come up with uh, coming forth is uh, trying to tie all that together. So for me, Vernon Drain really does that for us. He worked at AMRO for so many years and yet has a great connection, very small perhaps, but a good connection with Sun Records, having uh, created the lead sheets for many of the vocals there, and then on occasion recording at the studio uh, a couple of tunes.
0: Yeah, so here's uh, Vernon Drain, and when you wake up at 3 a.m. with Midnight Man running through your head, just remember us here.
1: Well, uh, Bill
9: Justice did a thing. We were playing at the uh, YWCA downtown here, and it brought in a bunch of uh, sailors from out at the Navy base to dance with the girls down there. And it was one of these things where it was such a variety of people that uh, nobody liked anything we did. You know, can't you do this, can't you do that, you know? So Justice turned around to Macker, who was the guitar player, and he says, play the worst riff you can think about. And Macker started in, you know and then uh, the rest of us joined in and uh we got through playing this particularly too <laughs> and justice turned around and he says man that was awful and i said yeah that was the raunchiest thing i've ever heard we ought to go down and record it instantly we didn't that night but we went the very next night and recorded it and sold six million copies
5: <laughs>
9: so i'm the one that named it raunchy and on the back side there was a thing called midnight man and uh, this was a uh, craft music uh, theater years later, had somebody coming back from uh, uh, overseas that uh, his wife had gotten remarried and all kinds of things. It started off the, the whole story with uh, Midnight Man. And on that particular thing, it started with me singing the first thing. Midnight of midnight, midnight to midnight, midnight of midnight, midnight of midnight. And then he came in and started singing about the Midnight Man. And I said, well, I won't get any residual out of that, I'm sure. <laughs> but that's funny things like that that happened all along the way.
1: Did you get residuals from
9: Raunchy?
1: No. It should have. No, I should have, I know. <laughs> but
9: it was just one of those things, I named it. Well, Justice did give me some uh, bread for it, but that was just out of his pocket. But he made
1: enough off of it. <laughs> did you play on the song too? Oh, yeah.
0: So uh, Vernon Drain also mentioned in that clip Playing Raunchy, which he named, uh, with Bill Justice Band, right?
1: Right, that's the same band that recorded Midnight Man.
0: Oh, okay, so they had a relationship beyond just
1: that song. Midnight, at midnight.
0: <laughs> that needs to make the final <laughs> cut. Uh, theme song, done.
1: So, Vernie Drain, <laughs> by the way, was uh, interviewed in uh, 2008 for the NAM Oral History Program, and we lost him just a couple of years ago, back in 2014.
0: So that brings us to the last kind of recording we're going to look at for this podcast before we move on to our final topic. And uh, that's the quintessential rock and roll song, the first rock and roll song in many people's opinion. Have you figured it out yet?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's really funny. I've run across this um, over the last 20 years or so. There are very few historians who would like to go on record as saying they – um, quintessentially point to one record and say this was the first rock and roll tune, but I will. Um, <laughs> <laughs> maybe that doesn't make me a historian, uh, but that's my personal pers- uh, perspective. Um, because all of the elements that we know of—you know, the, the beat, the rhythm, the, even the um, feedback. Uh, The feel, the grit of it, um, what became rock and roll, I think is um, certainly all, all elements are in this recording called Rocket 88.
0: So we're going to hear from Ike Turner again, talking about how Rocket 88 kind of came to pass.
10: He, he, He told me about Sam Phillips in Memphis. And so uh uh, uh had he uh,
1: already been up there and, and recorded with Sam by that time?
10: No, I I didn't know heard of Sam. Oh, okay. And, and, and so he said, "Well, I'm gonna make a, uh, an appointment with Sam, uh, 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 and tell him to call you." Mm. So, and so anyway, that was like on a Saturday. Monday morning, Sam Phillips called, and when Sam called, he said he heard that we had a good band, and blah, 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 he wanted, he was interested in recording us, and he said, "Well." Well, uh, uh, how soon can you come up? I said, anytime. So he wanted us to come up that Wednesday. And man, that Wednesday, it was raining. And so we all, we had the big upright bass, and we would wrap it with a tapoya and then tie it on top of the, the car. And, and then we would put all the the, the the amplifiers and things in the trunk. And then the trunk would be up, but we would tie a rope around the bass drum where it wouldn't fall out. We would wrap it. And anyway, that's why Rocket 880 had that distorted uh, guitar was because it got wet. When when we had a flat tire and we took the stuff out, the amp got wet, and when the amp got wet, uh, uh, the police came and they were patrolled and he said we were parked too close to the highway and and they they were going to arrest us and they they took us to a kangaroo court. And so what happened is when we got to Sam's and uh, we set up. Uh, to play, uh, Willie Kidzai hit the hit, hit the guitar, and 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 and, they said, dah, 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 dah. and and Sam Phillips said, "What's that? That's great, man!" And so that's when he decided to use that that sound because there was no fuzz tone and to things in those days, you know.
1: That is amazing. <laughs>
10: that's yeah, a yeah. good
1: story. Yeah, yeah. What was the name of the guitar player? Willie Kidzai. Oh, that's right. Okay.
0: And just a note on that clip, at the beginning, you hear Ike referred to a he. That he is B.B. King, who set up that meeting between Sam Phillips and Ike
1: Turner's band at the time. Right, and it was originally they had recorded a couple of tunes up at uh, Sun Records under Ike Turner's Kings of Rhythm in March of 1951. However, when the uh, 45 came out under Chess Records up in Chicago, um... Jackie Brenston was the uh, the the name on the label, so um, Ike always had his nose a little bit out of joint from that one uh, because it was the Ike Turner's band um, that had recorded it. He had paid for it, and yet when it came out, they decided, and I guess that they were the folks, the distribution folks related with Chess Records, having nothing to do with Sam. Um, decided that the uh, the lead singer of the song really should be the one on the label.
0: So we're going to hear a little bit more from Ike. Uh, Mike, what's the next one about?
1: So in this one, Ike's going to be talking about his inspiration
2: um, for Rocket 88, as well as the writing and recording process with Sam.
1: So where did the idea of Rocket 88 come from? I mean, did somebody own a, an 88 no, no, man. <laughs> we, we, we wish. We're just like some people wishing they
10: had a Rolls Royce today, man. $350,000. The cars was cheap in those days, but uh, the Oldsmobile just had came out, and we had a little thing we used to do in the car. Uh, 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 if, 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 I would bet you a quarter a dime that I would see more Oldsmobiles, uh, that I wouldn't see, you wouldn't see any Oldsmobiles from here to the next town. And so, we bet like that, so we were making a bet on what cars would be the most. And, and so, the, uh, at the time we were talking, a rocket 8 88 passed by. I said, "You not bet you don't see another one from here to Memphis." And and and, and then that then along, right along at that time, we thought about uh, 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 um, man, we don't have nothing to record because we, everything we playing is is on the jukebox already. So then we, uh, 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 that's when we decided that uh, uh, we were gonna write Rocket 88. And so all of us started adding our little two senses in it and then we got to Memphis, it was a, about eight to ten uh, pieces of paper with verses on it. And I got together with that lady that worked for uh, 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 Sam Phillips and uh, she typed it out. And oh, Marianne? Yeah, 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 and, 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 and uh, we, put, we put it in order. And then I went in the room, it took me about maybe ten minutes to, to put the music together.
1: So, are you the official songwriter, or is yeah. it a
10: group of people? No, 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 no. It was all of us. I didn't write it by myself. No, we, oh. we all we all was find uh, trying to find out what uh, what what was uh, 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 good, what was bad, and uh, but I was more the 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 creator, creator of the song. But you know, in uh you know, I don't know no till the day who they gave credit for, for writing it, because Sam Phillips uh, he said himself that the reason he didn't put the record in my name because it was, it was supposed to be Ike Turner and his Kings of Rhythm featuring Jackie Brinston, vocal, and he put it Jackie Brinston like uh, and didn't even mention the Kings of Rhythm or nothing on it. He said Jackie Brinston Delta Cats or some stuff like that, and he said his reason for doing that because. His plan was to record me as as, as as a single act, and he didn't want to have two acts out at the same time—some crap like that. Anyway, Sam and I fight like fight about that every time I see him. And and anyway, when I die and go to hell, we we still gonna be arguing about it. <laughs> you know that's where I, that's where I think I'm going because I want to be with all my friends. Stop.
6: <laughs>
0: well, you can't say uh. Ike sugarcoated anything. <laughs> <laughs> um, so why don't we roll, I mean, you touched on a lot of that earlier before the clip, so why don't we roll into the next one that um, where Ike Turner discusses, you posed the question to him about how Rocket 88 was possibly the first rock and roll song, and we get to hear his response from the guy who helped write it.
1: Well, it was a big hit at the time, Rocket
10: 88, right? Oh, God, yes. That's what they got me in the, in, the, in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame for right now. Hmm. And, and, uh, and uh, I'm sure they did their research uh, uh, I would think, but, but, uh, but, but it, you know, they never say that it was, uh, um, when you read about it in magazines or whatever, uh, 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 they always say it was said that Rocket 88 was the first rock and roll record in history. Uh, it's believed to be Rocket 88, the first rock and roll record. They never say directly rock, this is the first rock and roll record in this is so I don't care because it don't add uh, uh, add money to my to my pocket one way or the other. you know same thing if they say something negative
1: uh, just so sort they of spell my name right <laughs> <laughs> well that's an interesting point because I see the same thing it, they they don't say that about any other song. So why don't they just say it's the first rock and roll song? Right,
10: right, right. And, and, and in, my, in, my, in, in, in my opinion, is this, is uh, uh, like Elvis used to come to where I was working at in West Memphis, and they, they wouldn't let him in the, in, in the place naturally because it was a black club. And he would drive his gravel truck around to the back of the place, and, and, and uh, I would pull the piano. It was the upright piano. I would pull the piano out, and he would stand behind the piano and watch me play. But I didn't, know his, I didn't even know his name and, and, and until today. I still don't know his name, if that was his real name or if that was the name uh, Colonel Parker gave him. But ten, fifteen years later we played at uh, the International Hotel, which is the Hilton now in Las Vegas. And this, uh, 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 one night I won $470,000 down there. And so uh, I had, had it on this big old cot where they put the trays in there with the, with the chips and it was all great chips, and uh, I was taking it up to my room. I didn't want to put it in the cage, and, and uh, this this little white kid coming to me. Uh, he, he said, "You remember me?" I said, "No." And he pulled his hair back. He said, "You you don't remember me?" I said, "No." He said, you "Remember 11th Street on, on 11th Street, used to?" I said, "My God, sure is." And so that's how I remember him.
0: Oh, boy.
2: That's a lot to process. That's
0: a lot of Ike Turner for you. Uh, but we can't let him go just yet, because we have one more clip, right? Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, in this one, um, he actually gives us a little demo of Rocket 88. Oh boy,
1: And, and where did the, um, the upright for Rocket 88, was that in the studio, and you just played the one that was in the studio? I played the one in the studio. Because there was some talk about it wasn't completely in tune. Did you get that sense?
10: I didn't know, you know, like I didn't even pay any attention
1: to what this one was into.
10: (laughs) (laughs) We just played it. I just played it.
1: Would you be so kind as to play a little bit of what you did on Rocket
10: Rocket 88? Well maybe just a couple of bars, uh, I don't know, and so forth, and so forth on. That was beautiful. Oh, thank you. <laughs>
0: so I guess you can say you heard it firsthand. There, Ike Turner playing the piano, Rocket 88.
1: I love that tune. I, when I was a kid, I first heard that. I thought that was it. And what a what a hip tune. And I considered myself hip just knowing that song. <laughs> and maybe today I still do.
0: Well, I think we're hip just knowing you because you know that song i don't know how 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 far down the rabbit hole can we go yeah but we recommend if you any of the songs the recordings from sun we've mentioned if you are interested definitely check them out i mean they're all interesting in their own right even if it's not necessarily your style of music or what you typically listen to it probably plays a role in history into what you do listen to today
1: absolutely
0: So we're going to get on to our last topic, probably the one uh, everybody thought the whole podcast was going to be about when they saw the title. (laughs) But uh, that's the Million Dollar Quartet. Big Broadway show, huge deal. I think a new TV series came out, talks about it a little bit.
1: And just to um, put it into perspective, all these guys, uh, by the time this recording came about, Uh, The four folks, that uh, the key players in the Million Dollar Quartet, already had their own hits. Um, Elvis recorded Heartbreak Hotel, as we had mentioned earlier, in January of 1956. Uh, He had, during that year, um, also recorded Hound Dog and Don't Be Cruel, and was the star of a movie called Love Me Tender. Okay, no more
0: Elvis. So in <laughs>
1: December of that year, December fourth, 1956, after an amazing year for this guy, uh, he was in Memphis, and um, the, the story goes that somebody called him, it may have been Sam, and let him know that uh, there were some of his friends down at uh, Sun Records just palling around. As I understand it, the uh, session actually started, uh, it, it was on the books as Carl Perkins Uh, to do some recordings and he did have Jerry Lee Lewis playing piano. W. S. Holland who we had interviewed and heard from earlier in this podcast uh, was also there on drums and uh, after Elvis showed up apparently um, Johnny Cash was also there so that's the four. Carl Perkins, Jerry Lee Lewis, Elvis and Johnny Cash and what's really cool to me is that this is basically just a jam session that uh, was recorded. Uh, So often um, all of these guys would have a jam session and warm up before recordings, maybe the night before at somebody's home or whatever, so this is really very atypical of their jam sessions, uh, warm-ups and just sort of hanging out and having fun. And because this was the first time that all four of them had been together, and certainly in the studio setting, they were all sort of teasing each other as to what songs do you know? What songs do all four of us know? And a telling part of their heritage and why I think rockabilly became rockabilly was their influences, not only in rhythm and blues and the blues, which we all talk about in country music, but very evident in this uh, session of the Million Dollar Quartet was how many religious songs, gospel, and uh, traditional hymns, uh, like Peace in the Valley, uh, Down by the Riverside, Just a Little Talk with Jesus, and so many others just like that these major stars of rock and roll were playing and and palling around with. The uh, session started with Just a Little Talk with Jesus that actually is one of uh, a few that you can actually hear the drums of W.S. Holland on, which is really neat. Uh, most of the guitar strumming is Carl Perkins. Uh, Jerry Lee started on the piano, and midway through their palling around session, uh, Elvis uh, sat down at the piano, I think uh, about the time they were doing uh, Little Cabin on the Hill. So, uh, very interesting uh, session that was very telling of these guys and their background. Uh, What was also kind of fun is the few um, sacred songs, or or rather the um, popular songs that they were attempting, some of them not knowing the lyrics to Chuck Berry tunes, for example. Um, Don't Forbid Me was a song that became a big hit for... Pat Boone that was originally given to Elvis, but Elvis turned it down, and you could hear him lament a little bit about that after it became a big hit for his competitor, Pat Boone on a different album or label. Uh, he says, oh yeah, that was originally given to me. Uh, so they paddle around with that for a little bit. Crazy Arms and a couple of other hits of the, t- uh, of the day uh, were also recorded during that session.
0: So we're gonna hear first from Matt Ross Spang about the Million Dollar Quartet.
1: The other thing I think is kind of interesting about all that is um, is just the circumstances that occurred, right? I mean, like the Million Dollar Quartet. I mean, Yeah. In a million years, you never would think something like that would happen. Well,
4: yeah, I mean, uh, Sam was there cutting Carl Perkins. He was cutting up the follow-up to Blue Suede Shoes called Matchbox, which the Beatles later cut. And uh, Jerry Lee was an unknown piano player playing on the session. He got paid 15 bucks. And uh, Elvis stopped in from Vegas with a so- showgirl. Christmas. It was my Christmas time. And Sam called Johnny Cash. This is the story Johnny Cash is part of the story. Always gets there's two different tales. Like Johnny says he stopped by to pick up a check to go Christmas shopping. Sam says he called Johnny Cash because he was a big star at the time. Um, and he also called Sam, also called the newspaper to come take the photo, right? So, um, but it just happened. They started jamming and hung out for. And Cowboy Jack recorded the whole thing. Said he would be remiss if I didn't record this. I'm pure Jack quote pretty amazing
1: well there's also a drum on it and that guy you know ws WS doesn't get a whole lot of credit for being there
4: no ws uh and he's a he when people talk about sun they talk about obviously how rock and roll started there but if you look at just the other players like luther perkins how he played telecaster uh, that changed country music guitar playing forever. How Scotty Moore played, that changed rock and roll forever. Uh, Roland James, mm-hmm. I think is one of the most underrated rock and roll guitar players of all time. Uh, my favorite, One of my favorite guitar solos of all time is Chuck Carl Mann's Mona Lisa on Sun. And the guy, uh, his name was Matt Bush or Eddie Bush, uh, played this fantastic solo on it. It's incredible.
1: Oh, I thought that was... Carl doing that? No, no, no not okay. on Carl
4: Mann. Carl Mann played piano. Oh, okay. And uh, Carl now plays it live. He's learned it live, but uh, at that time it was Matt or Eddie Bush. I can't remember. But if you listen to that, you hear remnants of that, and Reggie Young's playing on like Billy Swan's "I Can Help" and stuff. It's mm-hmm. a, it's got the same cool lockdown, and um, all the Charlie Feathers stuff has this incredible guitar playing. And then drumming wise, you got Jam and Eaton. So. You'll see a million people play Let's uh, a whole lot of shaking or great balls of fire. And I played with a lot of people on that. It wasn't until I did a gig with Jan Van Eaton playing that I went, holy crap, that's it. The way he hits the snare and the rolls and how quiet the kick drum is and stuff is all Jam Van Eaton. And W.S. Hall and how he played the hi-hat uh, and played backwards you because know, he didn't know how to really set up a drum kit. Like That's the stuff that's pretty incredible you know, that came out of that studio that people don't realize.
0: So one of the names that uh, Matt mentioned in there is actually the guy we're going to hear from next, Roland Janes. And you want to say a little bit more about him, Dan, before we conclude with him?
1: Well, I really am appreciative that Matt brought up the fact that he really was an underrated but amazing guitar player session guy who gravitated to becoming a well-known recording engineer, not only at uh, Sun, but around the corner at the Phillips Sound Recording Studio as well. Uh, Roland was born in '33 and uh, passed away in 2013, just a few months after this recording. So let's hear from Roland James. Were you a part of the um, Million Dollar Quartet? Were you there that day? No,
6: no, I wasn't. I was uh, the part of the Ten Cent Quartet.
1: The Ten Cent <laughs> Quartet, yeah. I'm on the Penny Quartet. No,
6: actually, the way that came about. Uh, uh, when Jerry was first getting started, he actually played on a few recordings other than his own. In that particular day, he was recording with uh, Carl Perkins. And the song that recorded that day was called Matchbox, and I think the other side was a thing called uh, uh, Your True Love. And Elvis happened to stop by, and when Elvis stopped by, of course everything stopped and they had a big jam session and someone turned the tape machine on. but I wasn't there.
0: So interesting to see a perspective of a guy who knew a lot of these people but wasn't actually physically there for the for the session.
2: I'm sure he wishes that he was.
0: I bet. I, I mean, I wish I was, but <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't even a thought yet. So um, we're going to wrap up talking about the Million Dollar Quartet by hearing from a guy who was actually there and on some of those recordings that Dan mentioned earlier, and that is W.S. Holland.
1: Can you tell me some of your favorite uh, memories of the Million Dollar Quartet session? What was that like for you?
7: I'm asked every time we get out somewhere, somebody asked me the question of, do I remember the Million Dollar Quartet and what do I remember about it? And the thing that I I always tell, the thing that I remember most of all It wasn't a big deal that night. Nobody thought anything about it. We we were just in town to do the next release. Of course, we knew Jerry Lee was there because we knew Sam had hired him to play piano. So then, when John and Elvis dropped in, of course, they just stopped and Elvis sat down at the piano and and they just started singing songs. Uh, Jack Clement was running the uh, recorder then. He didn't think a lot about it. This is the reason it all happened, really, because what he did—he just turned on the machine and let it run. Went next door to the Taylor Cafe to get him a sandwich. He didn't think a thing about it. Now that it's all over and it became history, and people ask me what did I think that night, and I said, well. I didn't think anything about it, nobody there. The question I'm asking, what was it like to be in the studio with all those big stars? That night, there were no big stars there. Uh, Elvis was getting started, Carl was getting started, John was getting, but, but a, what we consider a real big star, you know, they hadn't made that yet. And I, I didn't know that a drummer couldn't be a big star. So I didn't like a lot of, the thing that I did think about, and I remember very well, that that was the time when Sam was having to pay union scales for a session. And union scale back then was a, about 11 dollars and 50 cents. And the thing that I was concerned about most of all was getting my 11 dollars. But later when it be, they became big stars, and they made the Million Dollar Quartet. Now I look back at it and I said, boy, I wish I'd have paid more attention back then so, so I could really realize what was going on.
1: Are you playing drums on some of the songs during that time?
7: At that time? Oh, yeah. That was uh, at the time we did uh, uh, the Million Dollar Quartet session. So, see, I was I thought I knew how to play, but then we, we had... Uh, that was our first, second, that was our third session. And it was in 56, so we started in like 54 and toured 55 and then all of 56 to then. And uh, oh, I figured I was in the big time then. I could play by then. <laughs> and, uh, and even today, when we do, the songs that we did back then, that's one of my favorite things to play today. A little thing, and a matchbox, hold my club, you know. It's, I, I, it's probably my my favorite thing to play that I did in the 50s. But yeah, to answer your question, I was, well, hell, I, I, I didn't know then that I wasn't the best in the world. <laughs> <laughs>
1: You know, I don't recall hearing too many drums on that session. Is there any particular ones that you can be heard on?
7: Here's why Sam really didn't like drums all that much. If you listen to, to most of the stuff up until a, up until a, a certain time period, they were mixed real low. Mm-hmm. And some of the stuff I did first, I, I did with brushes and it was more like a acoustic guitar. and Back then it was rhythm guitar,
2: now nice acoustic.
1: Very interesting
2: perspective.
1: There's a few misnomers about the Million Dollar Quartet, one of which I think has a lot to do with the Broadway musical that's going around, um, and that is that each of these four superstars sang their biggest hits, which of course is what they do in the show. But actually, at the uh, recording session on January—I mean, uh, December fourth, nineteen fifty-six—none of them sang any of their hits. A few of them had hits at the time, but uh, that's not at all what they performed, which I thought was really interesting. It would have been awesome to hear Jerry Lee and and Johnny Cash singing "Don't Be Cruel" or something like that, but they didn't get into any of that stuff. Um, so that's a, a very interesting uh, misnomer. Uh, another one is. Uh, I, that this uh, that these recordings were available um, right away, and that's uh, when I grew up uh, in the late '60s, or rather '70s and and uh, early '80s. I remember. Uh, finally having enough money to buy a bootleg at Rod's Rare Records in San Carlos. And that's the record I'm looking at and showing to Michael and Elizabeth today. Uh, I, I purchased this for $3.99, which was a lot of the money, in 1981, I think it was. And that was the first time that I had ever heard any of these recordings. And it was still yet a, bo- a bootleg. Um, it's now, of course, later been released by RCA and made into special packages and all that. But uh, it took many years, in fact, years after Elvis died, before any of this stuff was uh, released to the public. And the third comment I wanted to make about that is just my own personal favorite song, if you have the chance of listening to any of these recordings from the Million Dollar Quartet, um, is actually a song that wasn't released on that first bootleg that I uh, purchased, uh, called Brown-Eyed Handsome Man, that was originally written, of course, by uh, Chuck Berry. Uh, Why I like it is uh, it shows the influence of African-American music on all four of these guys but it also shows that they didn't always know the lyrics so they really struggle through this one and uh, forget the lyrics and have to remind each other and uh, but it's fun it's a really neat way of uh, sort of hearing them paddling around with each other and uh, singing uh, a song that they all liked.
0: Yeah, so that kind of wraps it up for us. I mean, from Sam Phillips getting the studio and creating the space, and then cultivating the Sun sound, to recording uh, hits in lesser-known tunes like Mona Lisa and uh, Midnight, our favorite Midnight Man, Uh, and then working with discovering Elvis and working with Johnny Cash and Roy Orbison and Jerry Lee Lewis and a whole bunch of other people. I think that kind of leaves us at our final thoughts. What do you guys, anything you guys want to add?
1: I just wanted to add the fact that there was really a hotbed, as Michael had uh, mentioned earlier, the location of Sun Studios, I think, was imperative to the success. And because there were so many different musical styles that weren't really, you weren't really allowed to listen to or mix together, um, but it was mixed together there in that little small studio. And I think that's a very important element that is primarily the reason that we're talking about it today, I believe.
2: Yeah, and I think a a big thing to take away from all this too is is what W.S. Holland was saying in, in that last clip on how they really didn't know what they were doing. They were just there to make it, make some money and, and, and play on some songs. They didn't realize what they were doing. They didn't know that everything that they were creating was going to be listened to forever, really. So I I think just the whole innocence of the whole thing was just amazing.
0: I think it just illustrates the point that a lot of people believe that if you have a passion for it, it, you'll create good music. If you have a passion for what you're doing, if it's a joy to be in the studio, you're going to make great music.
1: And one of the reasons why I enjoy listening to these recordings is uh, going back to a, a factor brought up earlier is the innocence of these musicians. None of them really knew what they were doing. Nobody said, okay, today we're going to, you know, invent rock and roll and and rockabilly. Uh, They just did. And because of that, there's mistakes and there's things that don't, you know, a lot of recordings, as Elizabeth had mentioned earlier, that weren't hits. Uh, There's plenty of those. Um, And those are fun to listen to also because that is part of the process, uh, the creative process of putting your passion through a musical instrument or through your voice, recording it and sharing it with others, which is a, a great takeaway from the uh, Sun sound.
0: So let's listen to our final clip. It's from J.M. J. Van Eaton, and it's all about the legacy of Sun.
1: Yeah, I was at the right place at the
5: right time. Got a lot of, a lot of music history there. And it, you know what's amazing is it, it, it doesn't seem to die. I mean, every time you think there's no more of this Sun record stuff going to happen, something else happens I mean just about the time it dies down they make this movie great Balls of fire and it kind of, and then they that kind of dies down for a while then they come on with walk the line Johnny cat and then that kind of dies down now they got this million dollar quartet big hit on Broadway I mean you know it's it will not go away man it's one thing they'll figure out something else once this is gone but so you've got to admit that that music was more than just uh, a simple recording. I mean that music is, it couldn't sustain the lifeline that it has all these years and people still buying the t-shirts, the hats, the, all you know, the music, it goes on and on and its uh, it's been a, well over 50 years now and you think about that. 1953 and here we are almost in 2013, we're in 2011 so it won't be long, it'll be 60 years, and it's still it's still popular. Not many not many people or not many music eras can can claim that, you know. Yeah, that's the truth. And that one little yellow record label out of Memphis, Tennessee.
0: <laughs> I don't think anyone can say it any better. Thanks for listening to the latest episode of the Music History Project. If you have any episode suggestions or any comments, please feel free to email us at librarynam.org. At
2: and thank you to Zach Phillips for the writing and recording of our theme song.